1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, we get to tell a couple of stories today, one in particular. Hi, Allison. Hi, Todd. We're here at co-hosts of Rector's Covered, <laughs> and we thought what we'd do today is go back to our roots a little bit. We're already well into the third season of Rector's Covered. So now's a perfect time for us to explain how we came to this name. And sometimes <laughs> you, yeah, you get to the point where after a number of years or 60 or almost 70 episodes or whatever we've yeah. done, you can kind of lose track of, of the roots. I, I don't mean in terms of how, you know, what you're doing, but just the memory of, of why is it called Rector's Cupboard, this kind of thing. And so that's all we're going to do with this episode. Yeah, You'll we get thought it'd to be interesting. <laughs> because the story is fantastic. It really is. And so um, I think the way that I'll start to tell it or is that in 2010, the then... Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, uh, went to a service to memorialize the 150th anniversary of church riots. Well, of these specific church riots at St. George's. So we have a newspaper article in front of us from the time, and the headline literally says, Church Remembers Riots, or another (laughs) uh, newspaper at the same time. Shocking times when the priest got rid of the port and the sherry. So to give you a sense of what happened in a church called St. George in the East, and it was there were other occasions and incidents like this in other churches as well. But basically things, there was such a battle within uh, the church at the time that there would be hundreds, even at times thousands, apparently. That's yeah, it seemed like a very well-attended parish. That... Um, that people were bringing in their dogs to church services. They were lighting yes. pipes. They were attempting to set fire to the pews. They were throwing their caps and hats in the air. They were heckling and jeering and catcalling through the sermon. They and were the singing. favorite, yes. Yeah, this is the one you're going to say? Yeah, I was just going to, like, they were singing rival songs. Yeah, Although which I, would I be cool like to the, try. I also like days. the laying the pews on fire. Like, it's just, it's very evocative. So they would sing like Rule Britannia and God Save the Queen when when um, the church was being led in, in a different song. And it all was around, so they're, they're referred to now in history as the ritualism riots. So it was all around this idea that there were some church ministers who were breaking from what some people in the congregation thought was tradition mm-hmm. and they were bringing in supposedly new elements. Now those elements turned out not to actually be that new because they were things like candles and different yeah. kinds of robes. Um, but to a church that had defined itself uh, as being not Catholic. <laughs> uh, famously, there you were know, the Church of who, England is. There were people who really, really got. So for our interest, this uh, focuses on one man guy yes. named uh, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Brian King. Yeah. And he was appointed as the rector at St. George in the East in 1842. Do you get that yes. right? And uh, he lasted there until 1860. Yes, he, w- he was rather... Mm, what's the right word? I was going to say triumphantly ousted, but... It, oh, yeah, that, save that. Yeah, yeah. Save that, the... the the day of his leaving. It seems like he lasted quite a bit of time, though, before he really got in trouble. <laughs> 18 years. Well, it was a stormy start. So he came in, and uh, the, the way the history is written in, in the accounts that we've read, uh, it says that he, he followed up from a rector, a, a minister, a priest, who was rather inactive. He just kind of did things and let, like, let things go. So the, the vestry, the leadership of the church that was not the minister... Um, they were satisfied with things apparently, and and he, this this previous minister's name was Farrington, last name Farrington, and uh, then when he left, Brian King was appointed, um, as we say in 1842, and right from the start there were some church leaders who didn't like <laughs> some of the changes that he 
was, um, uh, you know, embracing. One of them was he he would wear a different colored robe than was supposed to happen. There's an account in some, in one of the ones where he he actually wears the black robe that was what people were used to. And there's uh, there's a story here. He also related how a woman near him, when the preacher emerged from the vestry in gown rather than surplus, those two different kinds of robes, exclaimed, thank God it's black. Um, and so these were the kind of things that people really cared about. And <laughs> Brian King came in and started to change things. And then, like, as these things are written, truth is better than fiction, right? Um, because in the early days, from 1842, 1845 on, um, the opposition to Brian King was led by a man named Thomas Licorice. And Licorice is Like, not it's just the most wonderful name. Yeah, because it's spelled L-I-Q-U-O-R, like liquor-ish. Yes. Yeah, yeah not the candy, the drink. He's, he's, yeah, and he was the senior warden. And he started to... Uh, propose and pass some resolutions that said we need to re- return to the previous style of worship. Um, and he started demanding Brian King's resignation. And then it made the newspapers. But go ahead. Well, and, and it wasn't just um, this, this fight within a church. Uh, the the article that we were looking at talks about how uh, Reverend King was, um, he took a six-month stress leave in 1947 1847 sorry 1847 so five years in five years in he's on a six month stress leave and it notes that there's church is awesome legal conflicts with his warden licorice at this point like it's like they're filing yeah so this is taking things to a very high level five years in the name of the case is called King versus Licorice, this is 1852. King versus Licorice, that's a book title. Um, <laughs> and then and then there's newspapers covered this story quite a lot, apparently, at the time. And you can find some of these old articles. I'll read some. You can. Well, and we also up. found that Charles Dickens had written some, a little account of this. Yeah, he of, wrote kind of, of a this. satirical, like picking <laughs> up how ridiculous it was even at the time. Um, and you can find Dickens' writings on this where he says things like, where... Where is St. George in the East? In the East. And then he says, like, what, the extreme East or something? Do you have it? Anyway. Uh, um, it's very Dickensian, yes. obviously, the writing Saint style. St. George's in the East is in the East with a vengeance. Yeah. And <laughs> very much more towards <laughs> that point of the compass than the eyewitness had at all bargained for. Yeah, so he, he casts uh, himself or in the writing as an yes. eyewitness. And he calls it a temple things. of discord. <laughs> That's a great... Like, I mean, it's Dickens. It's well-written. There's, in the newspaper articles, like I've got one here in front of me or or an excerpt from one of them, that somebody who's writing, you know, writes like this. It was lamentable that a parish consisting of upwards of 13,000 souls. So parish being maybe the church, but also the parish, like the the area, the community, should be disturbed to its center at the will of one individual, so this is Brian King, who at his mere pleasure disturbed and deranged the beautiful, solemn, ceremonial of church service which had been handed down to us unchanged for more than two centuries. Now, this is, of course, not true, but like it, hasn't, it hadn't been two centuries of unchanged. Uh, the, the style that the people were embracing was actually rather sparse, and Brian King was bringing in things to kind of, um, you know, bring some... Some a little bit more ceremony back, some candles, some, and and they wanted it to stay sparse. These were not the days to trifle with the laity. I don't know what days were, but <laughs> men could not be dragooned into a belief or compelled to a ceremonial. Fortunately, there was an organ of incalculable power and extent to preserve and support the creed of their forefathers. Uh, the Times was that powerful organ. I guess they're saying that, you know, writing about this. The Reverend Rector talked of peace while he was at the very time, at that very time, fomenting, fomenting. discord by introducing a Jim Crow sort of buffoonery into the peculiarly solemn and impressive decencies of our simple, affecting church service. So everything was perfect. And then it says that. Until yes. this innovation yeah. was palmed upon them, there was not a more happy or united <laughs> parish in the whole kingdom than theirs. And then it has a little aside from, I guess... Some sort of editor. Yeah, this or is something. from the this is from the church website. Yeah. yeah, it says a claim hardly borne out by the evidence of the parish's previous yeah. history. The church is still around, right? It is. Um, and then there's this like division that can be so common. The idea that like in our day things were better, that people who've aged get to the place where they're like, if only church was like it used to be, then everything would be okay. Um, there's a note of that here. Do you have it in front of you? The reporter added. 
Oh, yeah. Several old parishioners, some of whom were affected even to tears, came forward to protest against practices which drove them from the church where their fathers had worshipped and were healing memories of holy things soothed while they sanctified their Sabbath visits. Like, there is part where, like, it does seem like I, I don't wish to, to like, disparage the apparent angst of of the people. Like, they, they felt like this was their church and some guy comes in and he's changing yeah, a whole bunch of true. stuff. Like. And it's interesting when you referenced um, the archbishop's uh, sermon that he his visit his visit because there's a sermon from there's that. a sermon that that he had where he 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 doesn't really demonize either side of it. He said that um, rectors like uh, Brian King were were trying to hold the church to kind of like a higher calling if you will right. that they were like church shouldn't just be part of something that you attend like it should actually be meaningful there should be um like it should require something from you it should be a level of work like this is something that should take up time and um the the archbishop points out how he's like that generally doesn't go well though <laughs> yeah it's and and in the notes we read it says that um he changed the amount that just the frequency of services from four, four. a week to 54 a week, which, which is kind of excessive. interesting to me. When we get to some of the details of how it all eventually, you know, came apart, um, there, there's all kinds of services. So it's like, there's like afternoon lectures and then there's even song and then there's so, but 50, 54 a week seems, <laughs> seems rather excessive. Do um, you think so? Yeah, it's so, but to continue in your quote then where these, you know, these changes and as you say that people cared so much about then it kind of presents this picture of people longing for comfort from their yeah because it know. says like the son passed by the grave of his father the widower of his wife the mother of her child to seek in some remote and unaccustomed house of worship that spiritual sustenance which the novel practices of their new rector had rendered unacceptable at his hands yeah so again that lament that like oh, if the people who came before us knew what was happening now and will kind of seek solace mm -hmm. in their memory and and he's, this Brian King has disrupted everything. And on the church website, the history that we're looking at here, it's quite a detailed history. It, and then it's it got really a is. ton of links and stuff. <laughs> um, and the church is like, as we say, still it's around. It's still which functioning. Is awesome. It's still, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against <laughs> the, um, But uh, it then from built from Brian King's own notes, it came to a head in 1859-1860. So remember, yeah. he was appointed in 1842, 1842. with a six-month stress leave. Uh, comes back from that stress leave, apparently, you know, more determined than ever. From everything we know about Brian King, he was apparently a pretty reasonable, um, compassionate person, but it says he was pretty stubborn too, which I think is I, I the think evidence it, bears that yes, out. No, no he, kidding. He didn't just, you know, give up the fight. <laughs> So in 1859, so there's this kind of tension between, you know, the official church leadership or the, like, the clergy, the ordained clergy like Brian King, and then the, the lay leadership of the church, uh, Thomas Lickerish mm -hmm. and others. There's a lot of um, notes in the history that, that the vestry leadership, the lay leadership was like, you know, they weren't really into church at all. They just wanted their, like at times you get this, this, uh, you know, so-and-so was from this pub and so-and-so was from this pub, like including yeah. licorice and others. But somehow they had appointed a, a lecturer, an afternoon lecturer named Reverend Hugh Allen. And he, on May 22nd, 1859, preached at 3.40 p.m. That's how detailed the notes are. Yeah, the, the details is kind yeah. of funny and, to me. And it's noted that the rector, Brian King, was against this Hugh Allen preaching. So there was some sense there that what the minister is saying, I felt this in church ministry as a pastor at times, where the the board or the people that like, oh, so-and-so should be a guest, should be a guest preacher. And you're like, oh, no, they, like, they're completely they're presenting a theological viewpoint that completely differs with, you know, everything I think. Yes, preachers would so never you do would, that. You, yeah, it doesn't happen <laughs> a lot, but it can happen. And and so you would be like, you know, do you do you battle it or do you just let it go because it probably just, you know, go unnoticed largely. But there's also then sometimes a group of people who are like, yes, we're finally getting in mm -hmm. the, the stuff we want. So it seems to me that that's what Reverend Hugh Allen was. And so Brian King, the rector, um, dissented and said this shouldn't be happening. And then it says that, so something happened in the, in, in the midst of all of this that 
that the Reverend Hugh Allen decided that what he needed to do was literally hold up his license from the from the pulpit. Yeah, it says to cries of "Bravo, Allen." Yeah, and then hearing of this, the bishop asked him not to preach again until the rector's rights were resolved. But Allen ignored this, so stop. You know, kept preaching. Um, the next Sunday, Brian King's notes just say they just say. Litany stopped by a riot in church. Like, that's pretty good. So to all you pastors out there who are like, how are we going to, you know, this If it hasn't been stopped by a so riot, so like, you're, you're doing better than, but maybe, than Reverend King but maybe a riot would be better. <laughs> like, at least be, you know, be like something happened today. Yes. There was a riot at the church. And and uh, so that's on, on May 29th. Two weeks later on Whit Sunday. Um, there's more stuff going on that are noted. Uh, there's a note well, about the it says that they too. that they're trying to get the police to help them keep the peace, and um, the yeah. church was closed by the rector. They're canceling even song. Yeah, all this sort of stuff. So it, it seems to escalate with just in like the space of a few weeks. Yeah, then, then there's lots of notes like um, on June 26th, the rioters took possession of the choir stalls. It's kind of like a siege, I guess, like oh a, a liturgical, no, maybe not that liturgical, but a siege. Um, and then the litany can't be said. And then October, August 14th, protesters took possession of the choir stalls, interrupted the singing of the litany with hisses and shouts. Um <laughs> And then somebody uh, had a fit and collapsed. And the crowd jeered and said, it's a judgment against him. Now down with Brian King. Like, that's getting. So yeah. one of Brian King's allies, I guess, or, or someone who's kind of on his side in the fight, is so upset by this and, and passes out, collapses. And the, and, the, and the rioting crowd says, see, that's evidence that God is against, against Brian King. And then somehow the choir boys get involved. Um, and there's a, I love this, uh, then the then the crowd goes after the choir boys and a scuffle in the baptistry ensued. ensued. I just that's just beautiful to hear. A scuffle in the baptistry ensued. Um and then all kinds of stuff goes on. What else do you have you have so now we're getting into September, November. Well yeah, like it it, it carries on and it doesn't seem like it generally gets resolved. And it has quite it has quite a finale. Well, this is where in, in on October 1st, that's when Dickon produces a little uh, writing that he calls All the Year Round, which is just a tongue-in-cheek eyewitness account of these riots. So mm -hmm. pretty cool that, like, you know, even Dickens noticed. Um, and then uh, it says, these are Brian King's notes, too, on November 6th, the morning service was celebrated with very slight interruptions. Like, that's a nice, you know, oh, I, I know, you know, having been a pastor that, there's there's Sundays where you're just like okay that like nothing. yes but the following week it says the morning service was celebrated with considerable interruptions uh, yeah. the litany with slight interruptions and the evening service densely crowded was much interrupted so now we're seeing why there were maybe fifty four like that there's there's a lot of services three services alone mentioned there but uh, and then the police show up yes and then sometimes they don't think the police show up enough. Um, on January 29th, 1860, there's a violent assault in the churchyard. Um, it's so, uh, at the instance of the rector, the church was cleared by the police. So there's so much rioting and, and yelling and screaming. Oh, and his curate, Mr. Burns, the one who had originally objected to... Just Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. Oh, sorry. It's, let's say it's Mr. Burns. <laughs> <laughs> Montgomery. Um, but Mr. Burns was... Yes, was the one who seemed to be violently assaulted in the churchyard. His hat torn in pieces. Yeah, his hat. I would kind of love the occasion uh, to do something <laughs> like that. It made the House of Commons, um, and and eventually in our introduction here, like yes. the the first and second year of music that we had, mm -hmm. um, it mentions that in 1874 laws were passed. So this mm -hmm. was all sometime before that. But these kinds of riots were spreading. Yeah. And uh, and in 1874 laws were passed. So it made the House of Commons as early as 1860, and they're talking about kind of what to do about it. Makes lots of press coverage. Um, and the things just keep kind of going on. June 17th, um, 1860, the morning service was scarcely interrupted at all. Thanks be to God. Leave it, uh, <laughs> few leaving at the beginning of the sermon. That's an awesome, awesome standard line. for a pastor. How, was, how did the preaching go? Only today? a few left. Only a few left, and it was right at the start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ooh. it's, uh, yeah. We have I've, different kind of gauges right now. I know I've had people leave when I've been preaching before. Have you? Well, like the last Sunday up? at church. Well, 
we'll, we'll get to that. Just, just that was only one person I remember, but um, and so this one was—it's not too bad. Only a few people leave at the beginning of the service, mm. but the evening service was interrupted by most violently shouting of responses, coughing, etc. Oh, so like intentional coughing. Yes. Um, which, yeah, and then uh, July twenty-second, we're getting toward the end of very, of, very of close Brian King's time here. Um, there's disturbance again. The evening service was undisturbed. I mean, people put a lot of work into into rioting and stuff too. Um, and then we say we see in the history in the historical account this is King's last entry for his health had broken down. Um, he published a couple other little things about this, and he agreed to take a year's leave of absence. And then you tell us the conclusion of Brian King's time at Saint George in the East. Well, he comes. To to the end, I suppose you could say defeated. Um, I mean, he seems to be the party walking away. Uh, what what I find interesting is <laughs> he uh, uh, trying to get people to take church more seriously. I would argue maybe he actually was successful in that. People took this very seriously. Not not wishing for him to do stuff, but. They were very defensive of yeah, their church. They, they took yeah. it quite seriously. But it says here that he left at the end of July and he left early in the morning to avoid a brass band the opposition had hired to accompany him to the station. Yeah, these people were. That is just, that's, that's a bit salty. <laughs> it, and then you, you found there's two only two remaining things that m- at the actual building still to this yes, day? Yes, there are two kind of, relics if you will um of of this at, that are still at the church and one is a metal cladding and iron bar on the inside of the rectory door which king used to protect him from the mob unbelievable yes and uh what is called the brian king gate that's awesome I- into what was then the rectory garden on the northwest side of the church which was his escape route from the church so like what we what we didn't mention though it we it it's mentioned in the music um, that uh, Rick Calhoun uh, made for us is that the the name Rector's Cupboard comes from this historical account. It and does. It was one of the first uh, changes that Brian King um, introduced when he became rector there. So around 1842 or something like 18 years before his demise. And that was th- that was that there was this practice called rector's cupboard, and the idea there was that um, port and sherry and other things were in in the rector's cupboard, and if you were part of the lay leadership of the church, so somehow it's sometimes before and after the service you could partake of that, but uh, you know also just in general part of the perks of being a lay leader of the church were that you get to share in the rector's cupboard. Yes. And I, that would cost a little bit to stock, I would imagine. Well, and, and, the, and they talk about um, in here that previous even to to Reverend King uh, coming to, to St. George's in the East, the vestry had already passed a resolution some years before uh, controlling the excessive use of church funds for lavish parish outings um, that also included uh, decanters of port and sherry in the rector's cupboard. Oh, so they were... They were already aware that it was being abused before... But then they used that to go at King. So he closed the cupboard, as we said. He stopped this practice. And then they're like, you can't do that because that's a really important part (laughs) of who we are. So we say in that little music, you know, the Reverend King closed the cupboard and we've opened it again. But I'm trying to discern whether Brian King is like, you know... Is he a hero to us or a villain, or is I'm he? I'm not entirely uh, sure. Maybe both. Like that. There's. I mean, as a pastor, I just feel for him. And and if there's any ministers listening and stuff, um, the church that I served in for most of my you know pastoral official pastoral career was good. There wasn't a ton of conflict and stuff until the end, and it ended like well, without a brass band. Though I I wish it they certainly had a wasn't like this. No. No one tried to light the pews on fire. No, no one was the jeering chairs. No you. pews, the chairs. Yes, sorry. <laughs> no one was singing rival songs during services. So, th- like, this is much more dramatic than, yeah. I think, our exodus. So, at the end of July in 1860, Brian King was finally, you know, finally walked away from this. At the end of July in 2019, 
many years later, um, <laughs> we uh, walked away from a church that both of us were working at. Yes. So that's a little bit of our history. And there had been some difficulty, conflict with the board um, that ended with uh, like all of the staff and basically the entire management level of, of lay leadership. Uh, deacons, they weren't called deacons, but um, all leaving on the same day, it's announced and and kind of we're gone. So after that, we well, bef- the, the year before, 2018, you remember yes. this? We, we got the idea to talk about church fights in history as part of a series where I think we called it How to Argue Christianly or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And so we recounted... That's where we found this story. That is where and we found the story. And our friend David Jennings, who's been a guest on the podcast... Yeah. I sent a thing out, I remember, to friends of mine who I know know theology and history and church stuff, and I said, do you have any good church fights in history? Because we're doing this series, How to Argue Christianly, we'd like to feature a church yep. fight, and that's how we found this. That's how we found this, and I, I reached back into my, my Anabaptist Bible school sort of stuff and talked about the city of Munster yeah, and how they hung Anabaptists from cages, so that was a fun thing to talk about on Sunday morning. So, so we, we presented these historical accounts when during we, the services. When I outlined the series, like as the person preaching most of the time, um, how to argue Christianly, the idea came from Daryl Guter, who mm-hmm. has done work at St. Andrew's Hall here in Vancouver, worked with Vancouver School of Theology, uh, much of his work at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, he's a BART translator. He's fantastic. And, and I'd been to a conference where Daryl Guter was mentioning that one of the things the church has to offer the world in a positive way, he's mentioning, is um, how to argue in, in how to argue Christianly is kind of mm-hmm. what he's saying. And so I, you know, briefly mentioned to him that I'd like to do a sermon series with that concept. And to, and then I thought it'd be interesting to feature like a church fight in history. At the time, I honestly had no idea that within a year and a little bit, um, that, that much of the, the next end. year would be yeah. made up of, of an argument um, that was over direction and vision and what's mm-hmm. it going to like to, you know, what does renewal mean? All those kinds of things. But then just kind of just like then f- f- collapsed into, as these things kind of go, just collapsed yeah. into more regular conflict that couldn't be resolved. No, and I mean, I I think I wouldn't wish to to, to demonize anybody on on either side. I think that there was there was a lot of frustration. I would assume on on our well, I know on our side as well as I would I would assume on the other side as well. Um, it just we we kind of came to an impasse. And it, it didn't seem like it was possible to work through it. And so after we left, we decided that we should start a podcast, as, as people do. <laughs> well, when did we start? We started in September. We started We recorded first in September, September and released in December. December. And so, yeah, within a couple of months, we yeah. had... We had kind of started this you were doing a lot of um the music and worship at the church i was your husband keith was um i was the youth minister there and then um your family was heavily involved in in lay leadership and no it it was a very quite um large adjustment for our family for our for our kids and stuff as well um because we we tried to keep them out of stuff as much as possible um, and I mean, it was difficult for my daughter at the time was six, seven, something like that. And she couldn't understand why we couldn't just work through it. And, and it was hard to explain to her. Um, and it was, it was a hard decision to make to leave. It's, and, and I had been there for in, in one form or another for 25 years. Like yeah. working for 25 years. I actually attended the church before I mm-hmm. started working there. I started working there in 1992 it, with youth and, and became like youth minister, associate minister, all that kind of stuff. Um, then had left for a couple of years uh, to take an associate ministry role at a Presbyterian church and then was called back in 2004. So from like 2002 to 2004, I was at this Presbyterian church and then was called back, like well, invited back to, to be in the senior minister role. Mm-hmm. And so from 2004 into, until 2019, that's it. And, and, you know, I, as I say now, I, I 
I loved working there. I loved the people. Yeah. Got along with the board, all the rest. Could Mostly. never have imagined that that there would be conflict that would lead to, to mm-hmm. a, a pretty severe break where I don't know and somebody might differ and say, no, it's not that. But that's it's somewhere between 60 and 80% of the church uh, was gone the Sunday that it was announced that we were all leaving, that there was, that, you know, that this conflict, we were unable to resolve this conflict. In my mind, and I would want to be fair to, to yes. you know, we don't have the other side here to kind of present their case, but, you know, <laughs> a podcast with the people you wrote company with. But anyway, the, in my mind, the thing that was most required at the time, um, and I would argue still, is that if the church was going to, you know, walk into the next, because the church was 50 years old, um, had been founded in, in well around that been founded in 1971 as as a, a plant of a very conservative uh, from an, uh, not a denomination but a group called the Plymouth Brethren um, who were you know had some pretty strict ideas of of what church should be no ordained pastors all these kinds of things so this church from West Vancouver uh, planted a church um, called Sutherland Bible Chapel at the time um, in North Vancouver. And that was what eventually became Sutherland Church, which is which is where we were at. Um, and the leadership, so the leadership structure of that kind of church is is the eldership, five elders. Uh, well, for well, us, it was five elders, time, different yes. numbers. And the elders are appointed by the elders. Um, so that's how that works. And the elders are the only official members of the church. Yes. So they're and the only ones that get to vote. There are no church votes. The elders will present to the church. Which, when it works well. And dissent well, can be expressed, but... But yeah, the when only it w- voting members are when the, it works the well. It w- it wasn't a problem for many years, and right. it it ended up becoming a problem when there was some si- significant disagreement, from what I recall, with how we move forward. We talked a lot about, um, you know, we had some issues with with the church building that were going to require some significant. Yeah, it work. still needs um, a couple million dollars worth of. And yeah. so we were talking about: Do we keep the church building? Do we tear it down? Do we like? all the sorts of things of where do we kind of see things going? And there was a very large disconnect there. And the, when it came to the fact that there was no official power anywhere other right. than we, within had, we those brought a mediator in um, and he pointed out to me and I'm sure probably to the other side, so-called. So this, this group of, of, of leaders, it's not Brian King's history. It's not 18 years of, of difficulty. I got along no, well no, with no. these people through it the years. It really largely was very, very positive. But then there was some conflict at the end. And when we brought the mediator in, the mediator basically said, well, the pro- said to me, the problem you have is, is church structure in that all mm-hmm. the official power is in the hands yeah. of this board. And uh, if, if there's just conflict that can't be resolved... Um, you know, it, it, it's going to break because so and what I was saying, what I was going to say is this, what I was saying to the board to some degree, I mean, they might go, that's what you were saying, um, was that what was required in terms of the renewal of the church moving forward and looking at what kind of church do we want to be? What's it going to mean to be a church in the days and years ahead? I was saying that the the um, renewal that was required is theological. Yes. It's not it's not just, you know. Let's have a program that can attract a bunch of young people. Let's have well, a, let's have a pretty shiny new. And so maybe I didn't, you know, explain that well enough. They started. Some of them probably started to fear that, like, Todd might be a universalist or something like that. And and so largely, what we've started now with uh, Rector's Cupboard and the larger nonprofit society that we have, and such a number of people involved, is something that is focusing on that theological renewal and yes. saying. Um, we, we still, b- we believe this for the church, it, that the real renewal is needed is theological renewal. And um, there's some key points in some of that. So in, in some of these ways, whether people can identify with the church fight stuff, and unfortunately, I think many can, um, until, until this experience of conflict um, in 2018, 2019, well, we'll see 2019, um, that that I experienced and you experienced as well. Until that, in my own kind of work in the church, I had not experienced a, a great deal of conflict, any significant conflict. I've never, I only, no, never, no. Like, like I like I said, they, my entire kind of experience being there and and working there for a number of years was actually like comparatively very very positive. Yeah, um, and, and then it's kind of unfortunate how it ended. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very unfortunate. Yes. Hurt. There's a lot of people that were hurt. Probably certainly more than me and, and maybe yes. more than you. Um, and 
And you kind of look back and you think, how is this? How is this going to be redeemed? I see some of the people uh, that that I was in conflict with to this day. Um, there isn't one of them that I think is like you know a bad person or something like that. I no. don't think I don't. I didn't really experience until some conflict gets a bit thorny and then it gets confusing. But I didn't experience like negative motivation. Like these people wanted something bad to happen. Uh, didn't experience any of that. It was it was just this conflict got pretty severe. Um, and then, and then it got kind of practical where things kind of went off a cliff a little bit when I got to the point where I expressed to the board that I had lost confidence mm-hmm. in, in, in their leadership. And then that's when things obviously really get kicked up into gear. Well, and it's hard to come back from that. No. And they asked me, um, the way I think of it is that they were in over their heads. They might say something different than that, which is fine. Um, but after that, they asked me, like, what should we do? And I remember kind of saying to them, well, you should, if you had confidence in your leadership, you should maybe fire me, um, or you should. Um, but I'm not asking for that. Um, you could all resign, but I'm not asking for that. I think I still had this idealistic sense of, like, we'll work this out. You know what I mean? But yeah. I wouldn't let go of where I wanted things to go either. No, and I think that we've been really intentional with, with some of our work that we've we've done since starting this podcast and kind of in the larger organization that, that we do, um, where we've been very intentional about having what we would call hopeful theology, hopeful faith, a hopeful understanding of Christianity uh, for ourselves. Um, yeah, and, and s- that's the renewal we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and it doesn't deny the conflicts and it doesn't deny the issues. Um, and, and I hope that, that people would hear this, that we're, we're not looking to dehumanize people that disagree with us at all. Um, but we do part company with, with theology that, that seeks to divide, with theology that yeah. seeks to... to so, yeah. let me give a couple examples of things that are kind of... So, obviously, uh, a lot of our like theological foundation, not solely, but... Um, one key contributor to to this kind of hopeful theology is Karl Barth. Um, And Barth was writing in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and uh, and teaching, and he has this big, looking on the shelf here, this big (laughs) volume called Church Dogmatics, where he's outlining a theology that is much more hopeful than than that which most of the evangelical church came to embrace. So I'll give you one example of something that comes from Barth's theology deeply christian was actually accused at times of like by by other christian leaders of being like too into jesus um and (laughs) what an accusation but bart had things like this and these are the kinds of things that guide us bart said the distinction between believer and unbeliever is something that cannot help you um in your understanding of god like if you if you're a christian Mm -hmm. that distinction is something that will always um, move you further from a proper understanding of God instead of closer. So for my growing up in the evangelical church, the distinction between believer and unbeliever was very, very important. For Bart, he says we need to drop that distinction. He, in fact, he said, if you insist upon using the believer-unbeliever distinction, you should only use unbeliever to refer to yourself. And a lot of this is coming because he's saying what God has done for the world in Jesus He's done for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so you can't understand God by pushing away from people. And this distinction pushes people one away from another. You can only understand God by moving towards people because God moves towards us yes. in, his, in, in God's self-definition. So that's, that's one. Um, the Bible, for example. Um, the Bible is the word of God. The Bi- Bart got into some trouble in some ways. Um, Bart got into quite a bit of trouble. Over his, he didn't yeah, mind, he yeah. Didn't, he didn't mind having spats. No, he's, he's funny and sarcastic in the rest. But um, because he drew a distinction where, you know, so the evangelical thing in a Plymouth Brethren Church, this is a big deal. The Bible is the word of God. It well, seemed to me at times inerrancy. that the Bible was more important than Jesus um, to, to some people. Um, and that was because, the you know, th- the plus, the, the positive way of saying that is the Plymouth Brethren Church was very biblically literate. Like you were, you were told you got to read your Bible. Yes. Do, like back in in the early days, and in the and there was Bible camp, and it, you know the Bible was a big big deal. Bart said he would go, okay, yes, the the Bible is the Word of God, a lot of the times. And people were like, what are you talking about? How could the Bible not be the <laughs> Word of God? And this is really kind of 
making basic his his theological approach here, but he 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 said if the Bible is being used in a way that is clearly against Jesus, so being used to oppress, being used to divide, being mm-hmm. used to, to, you know, for hating people or for, you know, any kind of superiority and inferiority thing like the, um, if the Bible is being used in such a way that is not the word of God at that, at that well, point. Am I correctly remembering um, and attributing this correctly that for Bart, he talks about, the Bible as being the word about the word. Exactly. And in that case, With the second like, W being capitalized. Yes, and yeah. that reference being God or Christ. Jesus, yes. yes. The Bible is the word about, about the, word. the word. And if it's not that in Christian understanding, then it is not then. And I think this is freeing to many people, maybe some of whom might be listening, who really struggle with the Bible because it was used in ways that hurt them. Yes. That was used to you know say they should deny who they are or something or say that you know there's so all of these kinds of ways bart opens up um different ways of Mm -hmm. of thinking for us he also one of the big pieces for me is that he said it sounds really kind of basic but he said sin is not ultimate it's only ever penultimate it's it's never the the most important thing it's it's less than that and so he he said that many evangelical or the distinction, the evangelical word didn't carry the negative connotation when he was writing that it's yeah. come to carry. But he was saying many, many Christian ways of describing um, sin and salvation start with sin. And, you know, sin's a problem. Jesus comes to solve the problem. And, and Bart said, um, you, we ought never to start that way. We, we don't start with humanity's disorder and then talk about God. You start with God's design. Mm-hmm. You always start with God's design and then you can understand sin. And also sin for him was not marked, like the, the keynote of sin was not pride, which is all, like in many Christian understandings, um, pride is kind of the, the key sin. Um, Bart, for Bart, it was sloth. For Bart, so he said, it's not, it's not that, um, you know, so what he meant by that pride, that the key sin was sloth, was that, Sin is the refusal to be who we are. So that's talking mm. about God's design, that we are all called to reflect God's love, mercy, grace, and we choose lesser things, which goes back to another point of Bart's kind of hopeful theology was that for him, being a Christian, he's saying that Jesus is the one true light. Every other light is a lesser light, but he didn't mean that in a derogatory way. He meant that so all true light in his Christian theology comes from Jesus, but every single person, Christian or otherwise, mm-hmm. can reflect yeah. that kind of light and love in the world. They are lesser lights, and but they can only ever reflect it. They can never be the source. That's a, so. All of these pieces are yeah. some of what we're talking about by hopeful theology. It does. It is different. And so, if you're going back to somebody like Brian King, um, those who are those who want to keep things the same are right to look at people like us with some suspicion. Because there's some pretty key things that we would like to see changed, like the distinction between believer-unbeliever as being ultimately helpful. Some of you listening might have been put off, you know, somebody dies and, and, and somebody you know or love or whatever says to you, were they a believer? Of course, what does this mean, right? Yeah. This, this means that it's the question of, like, what side of the line are they falling on after they've Well, and, and I think part of, of that struggle is we, we are... Um, and I mean, I guess I could only speak to kind of some Western understandings of stuff. I wouldn't wish to extrapolate this globally, but um, I know for myself, kind of the the philosophy that I was handed was very binary. Like it is either right, it is wrong, it is in, it is out. Like there, you have extremes, and there there is a very clear delineation between those extremes. And so for for myself, the believer unbeliever binary that was presented was based on an understanding of salvation as a set point in time Mm -hmm. that salvation was when I chose or that I received salvation when I chose to do something uh, for in my particular understanding. I prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer several times because I wasn't quite sure. (laughs) Like it it happened a lot. Um, But there was that, that changed me from unbeliever to believer from unsaved to saved. Um, from damned to saved. Yes. Okay. 
And, and so I think when, when you hold such, such a distinct binary, you easily fall into this, this kind of thinking because it's, it's how you understand it. I think it is, it is difficult to communicate and at least in my experience, maybe other people are more intelligent than me. And so can, it, it's hard to explain things in non-binary ways because there's ambiguity there. Yeah. And ambiguity was always presented as a negative in my upbringing. Um, it was always presented as something to be suspicious of, as something that was like, faith was unambiguous. And that's not, I found it unhelpful. Well, and you at least I could been, say that. You would have been... Um, largely like your worldview would largely then have been affected by the believer unbeliever dichotomy yes and that and so just that alone like if you're listening and and that has been a part people are reticent to drop those kinds of binaries as you say because Mm -hmm. it it is a way that they've made sense of the world and you think well if if I drop the believer unbeliever thing, then what does it mean that I have come to faith in Christ? That yeah. I identify myself as Christian? That I, and and Bart was heavily like he would write about here's here's the distinction between you know someone who ha- who doesn't has he call it awakened an awakening? Yeah, he calls it awakening to conversion. I, I love the language. That, so even an election like who's Christian, who's not? Election being like who's chosen, right? Because he's also at times he's battling various. Um, things within within Christian theology. And so his doctrine of election is really interesting because he says that, you know, so whether you're looking at like a Calvinist approach or whatever, who's chosen, who's damned, you know, mm-hmm. only a few are chosen. Do you choose God? Does God choose you? That's what we're talking about here. So Bart, again, his his doctrine of election focuses on Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the one, the one truly rejected. No one has been rejected like Jesus has, and that is a picture of of the cross. Yes. Um, but and Jesus is the one chosen, the 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 Son of God chosen. Uh, but he goes on to say that in Jesus all are chosen, all are elect. So yeah. it's not like individuals are. But he he um he said he wasn't universalist. He, he he basically said like I'm not. That's not the field that I'm playing on deciding who's saved and who's damned. He was more interested in the work of so he one of the things he talked about is he said that jesus didn't die for the creation of a possibility yeah so jesus died on the cross but nothing actually happened unless you do something well i mean that was and bart said if you distilled it down yeah that was a theology that was yeah um explained to me yeah and and bart's like no he didn't he didn't die and raise from the dead just to create a possibility Mm mm-hmm Things actually changed when that happened, and that—that's hopeful. That's what we're talking I about. I mean, we certainly think it is. He—he battled. He—he he, um, famously, um, more famously now because of this podcast and other things. Um, I don't think we. He parted company. He parted company with. I've heard people quote it because of this, but <laughs> he parted company with um, Billy Graham. So uh, he. We've talked about this in various things in the podcast before, but Billy Graham visited Europe and Bart spent some time with him there. And then I think they spent some time in the United States as well. And these are early days of like the crusades, which you've mentioned on the mic before is like, why would you call something a crusade? It always, it's amazing as you learn like actual Christian history and European history and the rest. Um, But, and in that Bart said, uh, spending time with Billy Graham was great. He quite liked him. He felt he was quite Mm -hmm. amiable and the rest. And he's like, all that is until I saw him in the arena. Um, in the, you know, at his crusade there, and he used these kinds of words, right? They're translated, but there he became a madman. And he said he, he, he stoked the fires of hell and then, you know, said you should come forward. And to Bart, Bart said, you can't present the gospel at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. That the second you turn it into something that is accompanied with a threat, that that is going to influence the whole of Christian understanding in such a way that your faith will be impacted and all these unhelpful divisions will come up. But I think, I mean, I'm personally a little reticent to, to defend uh, Billy Graham here, but it makes sense in the type of theology that he, absolutely that he had. Like he was, he was just, if you actually believe that if he was a team player, yeah, Yeah. that if people do not accept um, the gift that God is extending to them, um, and that they will end up in hell. And 
hell in that theology is eternal tormenting damnation. And so if you actually believe that, whatever means you need to take to get people to pull them out of there are justified. So any like threats, coercion, like you get all sorts of stuff that's justified in in these um, professed uh, yeah. means, or sorry, end of, of saving people from hell. Well, and that's where hopeful theology differs. Yeah, I would at, say I don't hold most, that, I don't hold that theological understanding the, anymore. Yeah, the idea is not that like, everything's terrible and going to go to shit and a few people will be rescued. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that, and this is then like a theology of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? And for people like Bart and others, this isn't only Bart, uh, salvation is never only personal. It's not ever only your personal relationship with Jesus. He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't argue against that so much, but what, but what he and others have been saying is that salvation means healing and it's the healing of the cosmos. It's the healing of like all things. And, and in the end, so Bart, what matters a lot to Bart is eschatology. Todd's favorite word. Yeah. How (laughs) things come to completion. And then I think of a quote of Julian of Norwich, who basically I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here, um, said the end is good. And if it's not good, then it's not the end. That's very Bardian. She's writing a long time before <laughs> Bart. But um, yeah, it's the same sort of. There's a hopeful eschatology yeah. that in the end, like God, God's victory, God's compassion is good. And that's why we say often the Christian ought to be the most hopeful person in the room yeah. um, because like, we're guided by this hope. That's the kind of theological renewal that mm-hmm. we're talking about. There are people who've been so hurt by church that they just need to walk away from church. And we, um, we have company with many of those people. We love them. We yeah. like, but there's a difference in kind of what we're doing with Rector's Cupboard. Yeah. We're, we're kind of saying, well, not kind of, we're saying no, this faith matters deeply to us and we see the necessity of this theological renewal. And so we continue to partner with people who are interested in this. Um, and we see some, some great things forming and, uh, but it goes all the way back. It in does. Our, take to Brian to King. 1860. Well, I guess 1842. 1842, <laughs> Brian King, um, Rome Williams. You can see on the notes of this episode, we'll put a number of these things yes. in there. Um, and, uh, but we're enjoying the work. It's been, it's been great. So those are the guests you hear on here, whether it's a, um, you know, an accomplished theologian writer, we've had some big names on here, um, or it's somebody that we know locally who has experienced pain and difficulty in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a wide range there. Um, people who are talking about faith and disability, theology and disability, uh, like a John Swinton and others who are writing hopefully about these kinds of things. Um, all of that relates back to this. And so we, we're enjoying the work. Yes. And uh, and uh, this little episode honors... Yeah. Um, Give you a little bit of a history lesson. King versus bit. licorice. <laughs> King versus licorice. Thanks so much. Thanks. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Mina. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.